0: At the end of 1 Timothy, the, the saga between Paul and Timothy. Here we are. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. I will read down to verse 16, and we will get going. First Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God... Flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The word of the Lord. I want to title this text in our exchange, God is worth it. God is worth it. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would Lend us your spirit now that it would go forth, that the preaching of your word would fall on good soil, that you would move and change hearts, that in these moments you would use these words to make us look more like your son. Lord, help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Karen Shallow Pryor, author of a book I recently read called On Reading Well, she argues that you can find and experience the good life through reading great books. How ironic. I I wish it was that simple, that I could pick up a book and find the good life just like that. However, one can't just read anything. Her definition of reading well is when people read virtuous books, and they read these kinds of books often. Pryor's thesis is that literature has a way of capturing and illustrating virtuous lessons and characters who embody virtues like love and faith and courage, perseverance, and so forth. It is precisely this kind of reading, these kinds of books that help shape the mind and heart of its readers to hopefully emulate what they take in. I think I can say that Ms. Pryor believes literature laced with virtuous stories about people is a kind of vehicle that ushers the reader into a space where he or she can catch a small glimpse of the one who not only embodies all virtues perfectly, but is virtue itself ontologically. In short, God is virtue. Karen does admit, however, that this is no easy task. Reading and reading well is difficult, especially in our modern, technologically sophisticated and fast-paced world. It is because of those precise variables that make this endeavor to read well, good. And she would say worth it. In her own words, she says in the introduction of the book, the greatest pleasures are those born of labor and investments. Those words of hers leaped off the pages for me. Miss Pryor had no idea that she would be preaching to me in those moments. I read those words and thought to myself, man, what a word for the people of God today. The greatest pleasures are born of labor and investment. There is something about her words that I'm sure strike a chord with many of you. In fact, while I'm speaking, examples are coming to your mind right now of those who have went to great lengths, doing uh, innumerable things, doing hard things to reap great rewards. Others of you are thinking of your own personal stories where you have invested vast amounts of time and energy so that you could get to your proverbial mountaintop. Hours in the gym or on the field just so you could experience a few moments of greatness and joy when your team came to victory. Years of clocking in and clocking out so you could make the corporate jump and feel good about yourself and your accomplishments. You have pressed on burning the midnight oil night after night so that one day you could rock across that stage at your graduation shake your president or your school principal's hand and grab that uh, piece of paper that you are so happy about. The human experience yearns for grandest things. We like grand and lofty things. We love beauty. we receiving honor, acknowledgment. Whether these are for good reasons or for evil ones, Humanity enjoys, no, no, humanity relishes being the center of attention. Yeah, that's right. You like it when all eyes are on you, basking in human praise and glory because of your efforts. Simply put, what you deem to be worthy is where all your time and energy and efforts lie. Countries spend billions and trillions of dollars on wars and defense because they value safety. UK, you love UK sports. You shed tears. You have parties. You shed money going to their games. You yell at the TV. You let, yell at 18 and 19-year-old kids who are putting a basketball in a hoop because you deem UK basketball as worthy. Your relationships. You spend that amounts of time and energy and money trying to soothe the girl or the guy. Work. You spend all your days wondering how you can get the next promotion, how you can close the next deal, how you can sell the next house or cash in on the next investment. We spend our time Worrying and trying to become the perfect parents to our kids. All our energy and efforts and thoughts, trying to be the best and the perfect parent. And then there's social media. Hours of scrolling and looking at likes and liking others. Five minutes later, we do it again. More hours of scrolling in looking at likes and comparing ourselves to our friends. You know, when I was six years old, I had this lofty dream of one day playing in the NFL. Here I am preaching in front of you this Sunday. I spent hours, days, months, years training on the field, trying to eat right, trying to do all the things that was going to get me to the NFL. At that time, when I was playing, no one could tell me that I was not going to be playing on Sundays. All the workouts, all the hours, and nothing to show for it. Friends, nothing in this world is promised. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at it, how much time you give it, or how hard you try. The human predicament will never be as good as you want it to be. The stuff you keep running towards will and probably has you going in circles right now until the day you fall into that grave. But there's an alternative. Oh, yeah. There is something different. There is something, or shall I say, someone who does keep his promise, who actually runs to you while you're running to him. Paul's final words in his first letter to Timothy is that alternative. Mine and your alternative to the endless rat races of life. This text is tailored to teach you and I that your relationship with God is worth fighting for above all other things. The goodness, the beauty that you chase in the world is actually found in God. Paul begins his final words with a double-sided commandment in verses 11 and 12. You can see it, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. I can see Paul now, how he hoped so uh, uh, badly to be in the presence of Timothy rather than writing this letter to Timothy. Remember, this was Paul's son in the faith. Their relationship was deep. Paul cared for Timothy. He viewed him as his own son. Paul would much rather be looking Timothy in the face with the hand on his shoulder, pleading with him to flee the things of this world and pursue the things of God. There he is saying to Timothy, be careful, son. Don't fall prey to these false Roman gods. Don't let the money rule over you. Keep your sexual desires in check. Young Timothy, don't be captivated with your work and become arrogant and prideful and cold and anemic. Can't you feel Paul's desperations? Run, Timothy, run. It's not worth it, son. Those things can't give you what you really need. Paul is reminding Timothy of all those Roman liturgies and influencers that have been forming and discipling all those around him. It's those liturgies that lead folks like Timothy in the church that he was leading into despair and exhaustion and spiritual death. The Roman Empire, their entire society and way of life was built on the false notion of these Greek gods, gods of money and sex and popularity, fertility, and social power. Everywhere young Timothy turned, these other theologies and liturgies were snapping at his neck, snapping at his heels, chasing him, grabbing at his heart. But that wasn't all young Timothy was up against. No. See, this is why, this is why young people need older folk in the church today. This is why us young people need to see folks with gray hair around us. There is, what, what, what we see in verse 11 is a vivid and urgent reminder that you are never too old to learn something. You are never too old to be discipled again, to, to continue on in your discipleship. What older folk possess that us young people don't is lived experience or other folks will call it skin in the game. The church is multi-generational for a reason. Because young, immature Christians need the wisdom of older, mature believers. They can see the things that you can't. Their vantage point is higher than yours. And it allows them to see the things that are coming up in ahead that you can't see. This is what Paul is doing He's imparting wisdom and knowledge and trusting something of eternal value to young Timothy. He's waving the caution ahead signs for this young brother. Paul knows the kind of bad fruit that comes when Christians choose their will over God's will. They live self-centered lives rather than God-centered lives. And the self-centered life will always lead to destruction. Every day, you're told you control your own destiny. Every day, you're being taught that you need to run as fast as you can towards self-sufficiency and self-promotion. That life is about you and only you, that your comforts and your desires are of the utmost importance. The current narrative of our society, which is much of the same in Paul and Timothy's day, is that you are the center of the universe, that the ethos of American culture is one of materialism and consumerism. It's a me culture, I, I, I. And we need not look any further than what social media has done to you and to our kids as prime evidence that everything in this world is geared to make you believe that you are the most important thing walking this earth. You know, Forrest Gump knew a thing or two about running from danger. I, I, we've seen that movie, I'm sure. You remember the scene? His danger were those bullies. And he knew if he stayed any longer, trouble was his destination, but thank God for Jenny, Run, Forrest, run. And there he was, dashing down the dirt road, and he gained momentum. And, and, and just when he caught his pace, those braces snapped off, and Forrest was gone. He was sprinting. He was running from danger. Forrest was running for his life. That's the urgency that Paul is conveying. Oh, but unlike young Forrest Gump, when God's children start running from danger, They can look out and see up ahead that there's a refuge. There's a strong tower in front of them. Watch it now. Paul transitions from fleeing to pursuing. Verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Paul is teaching you and I here that when you pursue the things of God, you will begin to experience a goodness that can't be found anywhere else in this world. In other words, the God-centered life will always lead to your flourishing. As Timothy flees and fights against the cultural powers that be on the outside, but also the internal powers of self-centeredness, warring for his worship and heart, Timothy has to know which direction to run to. There it is. I hope that meant something to someone this evening someone sitting here needed to hear that 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 when you run that if God is not the destination then life will have you running in place when God is not the destination you will run in circles you will run helplessly oh but you didn't catch it you didn't catch that that I guess that just falls on deaf ears So let me try it another way. If you don't know where to go when the power of your sin is overtaking you, then you will find yourself wandering right back to where you came from. And the only way to fight the good fight of the faith is to know where your corner is. I don't know if you've ever watched boxing, but in a boxing match, you'll notice every time The bell rings, the fighters return to their corners. They return to their corners for rest, for rejuvenation, for some water, for some words of encouragement from their manager. Their manager gives them advice about what not to do and what to do against their opponent. Their manager has a different vantage point than they do. The manager wipes his face. He gives his boxer water. He heals any bruising or or cuts or scrapes that the boxer may have endured while he's been in the ring fighting. Then he gives them some, some encouragement. He points out some weaknesses that he has observed from the other fighter, his opponent. Then the bell rings, and the fighter is ready to go another round. But every time the round is over, the boxer knows exactly where his corner is. He knows exactly where to return to. Friends, to withstand the world we live in, you need a corner to run to. To be able to take the punches of society, to be able to overcome the shame and the guilt and the shroud of of guilt in your life that hovers over you, one has to know where their hope is. When folk get knocked down, they tend not to get up because they don't know where their help is. They don't know where hope is. But that's not the case when God is in your life. When his people get knocked down, he's always there with a hand ready to bring you up. God is the place that you return to to get built up and encouraged. It's in his corner where he wipes your face and gives you water where he lays a nice cool towel on the back of your neck. It gives you what you need to keep going and to keep fighting. But this is just not a one-time invitation. No, no, no. Paul's usage of the verb pursue is in the present active imperative tense. Oh, that that ought to mean a whole lot to someone because that means this invitation is forever God's hand is always ready to reach down for you to grasp it he never takes it away regardless of what you've endured regardless of what you've been through there he is do not for one second believe that your pursuit of God is in vain it doesn't matter how many times you've stumbled it doesn't matter how many times you have fell down because of your proclivities. It doesn't matter how far you have wandered off from your corner. God's unchanging hand is always yours for the taking over and over and over again. That's the power. That's the power behind Paul's admonition to pursue and run after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Not only do we find these things in God as as sort of ice packs for our bumps and bruises of life, but over time, we actually begin to be transformed into these very things of God. It's these attributes of God that you as his people have to daily run after and cultivate because as Paul said, Later on in Romans chapter 12, in order for you not to be conformed to this world, you will need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, when this pursuit takes precedence in your life, it will inevitably bleed into everything else. Gospel transformation is not just an inside job, but it's an outside job. Now I'm preaching, now I'm having fun. Be careful not to glance over the sequence in which Paul places these attributes. Don't move too fast. The first attribute that Paul mentions is righteousness. On first glance, it would seem as though Paul is referring to our own righteousness. Like our standing before God in a merely vertical sense or judicial sense. Well, that's not quite the case. The semantic range of this use of righteousness takes a more horizontal meaning. Oh yeah, Paul is using righteousness to mean justice. Dare I said it, yes I did. Paul is using righteousness to mean justice. That means a lot. Yes, that's right. The attribute, the first attribute of God that Paul puts on display is that of God's justice. justice. We Americans, we have a hard time capturing, capturing the fullness of this idea in the English language. But righteousness in the context, in its proper context of the Bible, it's not only meant, to mean your relationship between you and God, but it also refers to how we are to deal with our fellow neighbor. In fact, according to Israelite culture, righteousness and justice go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin, twins of the same cognate. And in the case of righteousness in verse 11, Paul is saying that because God is a God of justice. His people must be a people of justice. I got no amens, but that's okay because I know, I know that there are some of us who struggle with this kind of talk and that that is okay, but there's no one denying that the fact that justice is not an extracurricular to God. It is at the very heart of God, and if you have a problem with that, then you can take it up with him and not me. Because of the skin that I wear, I don't get the luxury to ignore and dismiss the social issues that plague communities like mine and, dare I say, the communities that this church resides in. Because when I read passages like Genesis chapter 18, Exodus chapter 22, and Leviticus chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 16, and Psalm chapter nine, and Isaiah chapter one, I see a God who deeply cares about justice precisely in the social realm. It is this kind of righteousness and justice that prophets like Micah proclaim to both God's people and their enemies warning them of their injustice towards their neighbor, especially those who were not of them. That's a word. Micah was also warned of their silence or indifference when injustice took place in the land. It was this kind of righteousness and justice that Jesus preached and taught In Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 6 in the application for you and I is that we are to be a people who do all the will of God not just the parts that we deem likable the first thing that Paul mentions as part of the will of God is to pursue righteousness in the form of justice on behalf of those who cannot On their own accord and if you need help discerning who those people are or what that even means I am free for lunch anytime and I could say a lot more but I got to move on Paul moves on from righteousness to highlighting these other attributes that also carry vertical and horizontal implications in essence pursuing God is both a personal and relational call that needs to be cultivated daily to do and learn godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Folks, you got to get up close and personal with the one who embodies it all perfectly, Jesus the Christ. It is in the person and work of Jesus that we can see and know the fullness of God. And it is who he is on full display. It is this man that pursued justice, that demonstrated godliness, that held and has perfect faith, showed and shared perfect love, remained steadfast in all things, and practiced gentleness. But is he worthy? That's still the question. I know that's the question still rummaging in some of your minds. What makes Jesus more worthy than everything else? Well, he is the only sovereign. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He alone is immortal. Only he can dwell in unapproachable light. All power is in his hands, and his reign and dominion is eternal. He's worthy because he never changes. Unlike everything else in this world, God stays the same. He's worthy because he can never die. He's worthy because he's so glorious that James and Peter and John could barely witness his back up on that Mount of Transfiguration. Time cannot keep up with him space cannot contain him. With his mouth he formed the heavens and the earth. With his hands he formed you and I from clay. But that's not all. He's worthy because Jesus chose you before the foundations of the earth. Before you came from your mother's womb, he had already made the decision to hang on that old rugged cross. Before you took your first breath, he had already planned to take his last. He's worthy because death stood no chance. Sin had lost his grip when he decided to take the tumble down low. But then he rose with all power in his hand. All that he did for you. And you ask why? Is he worth the fight? Well, just ask the woman in Luke chapter 9. Young woman, please help me come close my sermon. Jesus knew, excuse me, she knew. Jesus was the only person that could hear her bleeding problem. For 12 years, she went from doctor to doctor looking for help, but there was no help in the land. But then she heard about this man named Jesus, and one day she saw him in the crowds. And she ran, and she pursued, and she scratched, and she clawed just to touch his robe because she knew that man could heal a problem. And there she is, squeezing and pushing the bodies aside, running after Jesus, just to get a glimpse, just to touch him, and when she did, she was healed. That young woman started running from her past. She started running from the noise of the world. Then she locked on to Jesus, and she started running towards him. She pushed, and she squeezed, she fought her way, She reached out and she touched him. And when that happened, she grabbed on to a power that healed her pain. There were no more tears left on her face. Her body was healed. And she had already known that Jesus was worthy. That's why she kept running and kept fighting. John says in Revelation that he's worthy. Who is worthy to open the scroll? His name is Jesus. And you may ask, why must I keep running and pursuing a God? Because on that cross, he deemed you as worthy. On that cross, he said, I do it for uh, for you. He's worthy, church. He's worthy for your fight. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we pray that you would give us power, that you would help us to see where our hope comes from. Amen.